Welcome to Curva Mundial. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Curva Mundial. I am your host, Sal Bono, and today my guest is someone who has helped keep me caffeinated and awake while trying to create this podcast just for you. He is the owner of our sponsor, Mod Cup Coffee, which are located in Jersey City. But as our promo says, they ship all around the world. And he's on our show today to explain to us football in the Midlands of England, where he is from. Please welcome to the show, Birmingham City and England supporter, Travis Clifton. Welcome, my friend. All right, mate. So have you? <laughs> we made it. I'm here, kid. How are you, Sal? I'm good, man. I'm good. I'm really excited to have you on. Uh, you know, you and I for many years now have chatted off camera about football and about the leagues that you follow and these small teams that I, I don't know anything about, which easy on the small teams, mate. We're one of only 17 clubs to win a trophy in the 21st century in England, mate. It's easy. See, there we go. You see, this is exactly, exactly my point. You're proving it in the first two minutes. Uh, our listeners are in for a good treat. So I want to I want to get to know before we get into everything. I want to get to know what the Midlands is because the Midlands to me, as an outsider, is interesting because I only know it through the films of Shane Shane Meadows, right. and Birmingham, Birmingham I know through thanks to Peaky Blinders and the music of Black Sabbath, The Streets, The English Beat, Godflesh, and editors who all hail from there. Yep. But the music and movies have such dark undertones based from that city and that area. So it begs me to ask the question. What's it really like? And is it really that dark? <laughs> well, uh, the Midlands is God's country, as we like to call it, mate. <laughs> the Middle Counties, Middle Earth. <laughs> oh, so that's where it comes from, Lord of the Rings. I, I have no idea, actually, mate. I do know this, that um, Birmingham is, is just one of four or five larger cities in the Midlands. And when I say large, nothing large compared to America, you know. I think Birmingham's population is one and a half million, maybe two million at the tops. But um, Birmingham itself, of course, was kind of like the workshop of the world back in the 1800s. It was like China is today, I guess. It, it made everything um, and shipped it all over the world. It was a you know, huge industrial um, city. And hence parts of it are known as the Black Country because um, it was known for you know, soot on people's faces, coal, industry. Um, so as a result of that, it's got a bit of a reputation for being a hard town. Um, and it, it historically, it's a tough town, you know what I mean? It's a, and, you know, Black, Black Sabbath metal music comes out of there. Yeah. We have a massive, um, um, very multicultural city, Birmingham, um, along with like Bradford now, but back even before Bradford became an epicenter of, um, you know, Southeast uh, Asian culture in, in, in the UK. Birmingham is really the, the largest population of Indians and Pakistanis in the whole country. Oh, wow. Also a really big West Indian community too. Um, and hence, we've got a really uh, diverse music scene as a result of that, really. Um, the football has always played second fiddle, I guess, to the music scene. Uh, however, historically, you know, the Midlands has, has had some pretty important times in football. You know, back in the 50s, Wolves, West Bromwich Albion, two huge sides came out of the Midlands. Uh, the late 70s and early 80s, contrary to what Frankie will tell you, was not dominated by Liverpool. If you if you classify the late 70s to early 80s as 78 to 82, I think you'll find three out of the four European Cups are won by Midlands teams. Two for Forest, one from, I hate to say it, but Villa. Um, so, you know, historically, we, we, we punched above our weight with regards to uh, um, doing well in, 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 in 
you know, national football. And of course, when you even just think about the, the foundations of football in, in England, the, the, the founding 12 members of the Football League, six of them were from the Midlands, mate, which uh, not many people know, you know. You, know, you, you were basically Villa, uh, who else was the founding members, Wolves, West Bromwell, uh, Notts County, Stoke, Derby County. So yeah, a big half of them were from the Midlands, the founding members of the Football League. And so the Midlands really is a large, large area, cities, but it's also surrounded by beautiful countryside, the Midlands. Some of the most beautiful, like Shakespeare countries in the Midlands too. Uh, we call it Staffordshire, but really it's still part of the Midlands, right, you know. Wow. But as far as clubs go, you've got uh, Villa, Blues, Coventry, Wolverhampton Wanderers, West Brom, Warsaw. They're all what we call West Midlands. And then you've got your East Midlands teams, of course, too. Leicester, um, who are probably the greatest fairy tale story in the history of sport, I would argue. Derby County, who unfortunately are going through a, a tough time at the moment. I, I hope they stay up. I'm really too. Nottingham Forest and, and Nottingham Not County, you know, so they're right there off the bat. You've got 10 clubs in, in, a, in, a, in a region. Now, um, is there, how intense is the rivalry between the East and the West? Or is there none? It's sort of like, well, let's lift each other up and carry on and let's no, go watch the big cities. Oh, no, mate. There's, there's fucking intense rivalry between them all. But typically it's between two clubs rather than against the West and East Midlands sort of thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so the rivalry sticks inside of the West Midlands between one another and the same for the East Midlands. You know, for, for us, of course, my own team, Birmingham City, it's, uh, it's, it's, the, it's, it's the vile that we loathe, mate, uh, the Villa. Um, Wolves and Albion, huge rivals. Warsaw kind of sit out on their own and so do Coventry, really. We just call them Woollybacks. I don't know who their rival is, really. Probably maybe it's Leicester than Coventry, even though I wouldn't classify Cobb as being East Midlands. Um, Nottingham Forest are big rivals with Notts County, of course. Right, yeah. Um, Derby, Coventry and Leicester I'd pin us all together really as eight in one another but for example we don't hate West Brom and we don't hate Wolves but we fucking hate Villa <laughs> <laughs> okay alright well that's the, that definitely paints uh, a much clearer picture and actually the Villa Blues Derby is, is when it happens because it don't happen too often because unfortunately uh, we languish in the in the lower leagues these days but when it does happen it is one of the most intense rivalries in football I would say in fact there was, a, there was a podcast recently with Dion Dublin, of course, who's Villa. And who else was on it with him? I forget who else was talking. Maybe it was Savage. And the two of them were saying that, you know, outside of the old firm derby, it's probably the nastiest derby in the whole of the United Kingdom. Wow. Those two clubs loathe each other. <laughs> wow. Remember when wow. one of our fans came in the park and, and, and gave little Grealish a little twat in the face? <laughs> you know... When not that I'm condoning that, yeah. I mean, there's you know, we're not, there's no football facts. It's not in the face, it's Grealish. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, look, when you, when you have a player going for a hundred million pounds and is not delivering, but as there's all this hype around it, you have to just sit there and scratch your head, going like, Well, I find it a strange move actually because City move the ball so fast, Grealish likes to hold the ball. Yeah, he doesn't play it, he doesn't play in that system, period. And I know Pep has come out and tried to do whatever he can to, you know, uh, to make him feel good and you know, put out some of these fires that the press and the public have given Grealish because he's just he just is clearly he's a fish out of water, but he's a fish out of water in this. And also, when you why would you break the bank on a guy that you clearly don't need yeah well well i guess when you have the money you can 
they got three teams that can fill up Man City, aren't they? Let's be honest there. <laughs> I, you know, that's, where do you see a player like that really fit in? I mean, because in, in, you know, the Premiership especially is known for quick passing, quick movements. And as you said, he likes to hold the ball. I think he would do better in Spain or Italy. He would never go there because he's just so English. You know. He's such a brummy, never mind English. <laughs> it's just like, I just, I can't see him leaving England. But, no. I, you know, he does like that extra second or two on the ball. It'd be like Ian Rush going to Italy when he did his total fish out of water. Totally, <laughs> totally. I remember when Ashley Young came to Roma. When Ashley Young came to Roma, you know, was still very good. Still had a lot of sugar in his tank. Uh, gas in his tank, rather, no sugar. Uh, but he... It was it was bad. It was bad. But you know now you see Tammy Abraham and you see Chris Smalling and they're doing very well at Roma. Uh, I agree with you. I think Grealish would look. He's done well in the in the Premier League with Villa. He was, you know, right. but the team revolve around him. Do you know what I mean? Um, and I think he's that kind of player. He needs everybody to give him the ball and uh, you know everything to rely around him. And, and and as I said, he kind of likes to take a few touches. Whereas it's just not the way Man City plays it. Mm. Anyway, no, for sure. A former Villa player here. This isn't good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So enough about Villa. Sorry, I don't get the blood boiling here. Uh, but you know, being from Birmingham, you took on to support the home team, obviously, which is fantastic. Well, it's interesting you say that I took it on because I came to Blues um, as a, as a real fan in sort of my. Uh, Middle teenagers, really. Oh, so it's not like it wasn't just like no, no, right, you're from the town, you have to. You, no, you no, visit no. It. look, oh. my old man, my, my dad's a villa fan, and my stepfather's an Albion fan. Wow, so that's a hell of a family reunion, right? So, what it, what it was was that when I was a kid and I was football mental crazy from the age of like five years old, but I was always a fan of underdogs, and I still am to this day, as you well know, whether it's music or or just anything I like, I like the underdog. Um, it's very much a British cultural thing that is too. And so at the age of five, six, 1982, the first match that I ever remember watching on TV was the FA Cup final between Man United and Brighton. And even though Brighton were the underdogs, Man United were still a, they haven't won anything in ages and were considered a bit shit. And I took a fancy to United then when I was six at the time. And then religiously followed United until the age of probably 13, 14. I went to, 14, yeah, because I went to the FA Cup final to see them play Palace in that 3-3 FA Cup final in 1990. I was 14 then. And then, of course, when you get to 16 and you start going clubbing and you start realising, wait, I'm a bit of a fucking dick. I'm from Birmingham and I fucking support Man United. I've got to fucking sort this out. And so as a result of that, all of my mates at school were either Villa fans or Blues fans. And I chose Blues because to me, the lads who followed Blues were a, were a better crack. <laughs> God, <laughs> it was nothing to do with what I was going to go and watch. It was to do with the crack and, and all my Blues mates tended to have a lot more fun. So as a result of that, I started following Blues and going home and away with all my mates. And so that would have been about 90 two when i was 16 wow that's great i mean at least there's a there's there's a good realization and epiphany you had there for it you know seeing birmingham city now in in the championship you know what's that like for you not seeing them in premier league not seeing them in top flight you know seeing them sort of you know really still dive in the trenches and well, try 
you know, there was always this thing, wasn't there? That, and, and I guess a lot of fans of teams who exist in the Premier League on a constant battle to stay up. You're always asked, aren't you, would you prefer to win in the Championship or get hammered every week in the Premier League? Um, and, you know, I've never... I, I've never it doesn't really make any, any difference to me because we get hammered in the Championship these days anyway. <laughs> I mean, the last three seasons, we only stayed up by the skin of our teeth. Do you know what I mean? I think every season. Um, so that question doesn't pertain to me. The question that does pertain to me is... In 2011, of course, when we did beat Arsenal in the Cup, and I was I was there at Wembley with all of us, it was about 45, just went from my, my own town of Coase, um, all old school friends. And so that question that year was when, when we won the Cup in February, we were mid-table, um, and we had basically the biggest hangover of any team, I think, that's ever won a trophy. I don't think we won again for the rest of the season. And we went down in the 87th minute of the last game of the season. And, of course, fucking Wolves were the team that stayed up. They won 3-2. And I think they'd be drawn, not even drawn, still gone down. Uh, but the question is, would you, have, would you have rather stayed up and not won the Cup? Or would you have rather won the Cup and gone down? Well, it's a no-brainer. You win the Cup and go down. It's an absolute no-brainer. That was ah. the greatest... Uh, club football day of my life. I mean, it was epic. We won in the 88 minutes. You know, it didn't get any better than that. You like, feel now like... A team with like Van Persie and shit that was. I mean, that's top I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's top notch right there. You know, when you think about what the FA Cup has become now, it's, it's a highly commercialized event like the rest of football, you know, and you see smaller teams or it's smaller in terms of, maybe finances and popularity not so much in terms of like unless there's a big team now let's face it unless there's a big team because of what the amazing things that they did everybody knows Leicester so you have like more the provincial sides let's say is the I guess the nice term to put it when the David versus Goliath doesn't happen as often as it did in the 90s and in the 80s do you feel like that takes away from some of the magic or when it does it's the FA Cup doing its job, and it's so much more beautiful that way. Because again, we're cheering for the underdogs here. Look, I mean, the FA Cup is still to me, it's a, it's a magical thing in football. Um, but I'm wow. 46 years old. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm of an older generation. The younger generation can give a toss about it. But the FA Cup to me is still magical. And you know, going back to the Midlands, we've got some very small teams, as you say, that don't play in the in the four professional divisions. Um, Hereford, of course, they've had their magical day in the FA Cup when they beat, who did they beat? Newcastle, was it, in the 80s? Knocked out Newcastle, I think. Or was it Arsenal? Might have been Arsenal. They knocked out Arsenal recently, I think, maybe. Shrewsbury, small club. Stafford Rangers, who, of course, Stan Collingwell made his name with when he first started. Kidderminster had a recent run in the FA Cup, also a Midlands team. So you see these small teams go on these runs in the FA Cup, and let's be honest, it's Fucking magic. Anybody that loves football loves to see a big team get taken down by a small team. I think that's why the world collectively supported Iceland for some for in the last like five, six years. You saw everybody like put their chips behind Iceland in international play. Not that you knew that they weren't gonna win a World Cup, you knew they weren't gonna win a Euro, but man, these Vikings, they're they're hell of a lot of fun to watch and look at what they're doing. Fucking knocked us out in 2016, didn't they? In the Euros. Yeah, I don't want to bring it up. Performance thing I've ever seen. Even worse than fucking Turnip Taylor's days, that one was. <laughs> but yeah, I do hear you. Yeah, it's wonderful to support small clubs. And I believe it's, you know, it is important. It's really important that the FA Cup retains its uh, magic. And I don't think you'll ever take it away. That's too much history to do that. Right. Um, 
That's good. The idea of big teams play, playing, you know, reserve teams. I mean, who was the first team that did that and got penalised? Was it was it United when they played Wolves? I think going back about 15 years ago, United put out like an absolute threadbare team and I think they got in trouble over it. That does sound vaguely familiar. I can't confirm that off the top of my head, but that does sound something i remember something like that had happened like they put out basically like the reserves like hey well you know you ask the question can any of these small teams um ever compete in the day and age of globalism it's like asking can my company compete in the day and age of globalism right. you find a rabid fan base and and you hope that that rabid fan base um keeps you in business and then you hope some mega wealthy chinese or or, or saudi prince comes and buys you down you know i mean that's your only ticket in i will say this about the midlands especially with this new train that's going to go in, that's going to go from London to um, Birmingham direct in like 35 minutes. Oh, wow. At the expense of like, fuck knows how much money. It's a lot of fucking money uh, and a lot of beautiful green land bulldozed for it. But that means that, um, you know, that the, the people can live in Birmingham and still have the high life of London, I guess. And I don't know whether that's going to encourage more owners to buy into into Midlands clubs, but let's be honest, Wolves are owned by a big Chinese consortium, Villa are owned by Americans, Birmingham have been owned by a bunch of different Chinese consortiums over time. Leicester, uh, of course, King Power, that's a Thai Leicester company. With the big ties, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, look, it can happen, we saw it with Leicester, but then again, mate, is that ever going to happen again? I mean, not for me, that's a once in a lifetime thing, isn't it? It, it was so, it's a, spe- like, here's, all right, so now, okay, Birmingham City fan, but you rep the Midlands, that's, that's your area, Birmingham's your team, that's your city. But for a team like Leicester, you know, who have just, you know, it, it's Leicester City. It's, it's a team of, at the time, created superstars. Mares, Vardy, Nicolo Conte, and of course, and of course they win because they're managed by an Italian here, Trav. You know, Claudio Ranieri. The well, you know, the, the, the mad thing about that was, was that it wasn't, uh, Ranieri that kept them up because if you remember 10 it was games, the guy before it was it was Nigel Pearson yeah and and with 10 games to go in the previous season they were dead and buried I think they were bottom and going down and then oh. won the last 10 games and stayed up and then Pearson got fired in the pre-season it was a scandal it was a scandal they went to Thailand and he, him and his son got on it in some degree and and they got videoed and they got in trouble and he had to leave didn't he of course yeah it's funny yeah. how fate works, and it, and then in comes the Tinkerman, and they win the league. It's it's it really, you know, it was it was such a beautiful moment that I think, I think everybody, there's times where you're watching a team like I remember when QPR about ten years ago were in Premier League and they were doing really well those first two or three months, then they dropped off. Leicester just like had this slow gradual build. It was kind of like again put it in perspective for you and I that we love music. It's kind of like that band that gets that buzz. They're, they're playing the bars in, in the Lower East Side and you're like, oh, well, my friend's really into them. I should go check them out. Suddenly you see three months later, oh, they're playing Bowery Ballroom. Then they're playing Webster Hall. It gets slightly bigger and bigger before you know it, within a year's time, they're yeah. headlining Radio City. That was what Lester reminded me of. It was this gradual buzz. And then, of course, Renieri going out being like, I take my team out for pizza and I love everybody and everybody loves me. Being from the Midlands, seeing a story like that, even though it wasn't your team, how proud were you? Or did you- it was it was magic. I mean, let's be honest, I had no beef with Leicester. I was fucking a Leicester fan that season, as I'm sure most of the world was, who liked football, you know what I mean? It was fucking brilliant. You know, Leicester's a small city um, in, in, in my 
in my neck of the woods, mate. So yeah, I was fucking well happy for them. Yeah. Jealous, mad jealous, of course. Uh, <laughs> they weren't us in, in our blue. Um, but yeah, fucking stoked for them, man, yeah. So you've been... Uh, yeah, that's the thing. It's like, and that that team did such a such an amazing thing, and you know, and then the tragedy a couple of years later, then the owner dies right outside the stadium in that helicopter crash. Yeah. Well, it's what funny a- again how fate works. Again, with Leicester when they won the league, everything fell into place for them. Right? They could have gone down in that in mm-hmm. the season before. And you know, I look at my own club for example, and I'll refer back to that season. It's 2010-11 when we won the cup, and we were mid table when we won the cup. We went down, right. and then we had because it was McLeish who was managing us then. And then we had Chris uh, Hooten coming and manage us. And, of course, we were in the Europa League the next season, even though we were playing in the Championship. We got to the playoffs that season, lost in the playoffs. In the Europa League, right, I think it was we got nine points and still didn't qualify out the group. Oh, we didn't, wow. we didn't qualify because of goal difference. We might even have got 10 points. But it, still to this day, I think it's one of the highest points in the old Europa League like that, that you didn't qualify for the next next round. Oh, it's wow. strange how fate works sometimes. You know, who'd have known what would have happened if we got through that group stage? I just don't know, do you? Right, right, right. You know, for the last, um, as you, for the last 15 years, you've been living in the States. You're supporting a team that is kind of yo-yos among the tables. What's no, we're not, we're not a yo-yo team, mate. We haven't come back since 2010-11. West Bromwich Albion are the classic yo-yo. Okay. Go up and down. Birmingham Arms. So you're it's, right. It's interesting that when when I started following Blues heavily, like in the you know early to mid nineties, we were a lower league team, and then we got promoted, and then we had a a, a, a spell of. Eight, eight, nine years in the Premier League with good players coming through us too. I mean, we had Christoph Dugri, who's fucking magic, mate. Um, world-class player at Birmingham. Like, it was brilliant. And then, of course, we went down and never come back. We're not really a yo-yo team. Oh, okay. All right. My mistake then. My mistake. So, but you have a team then that's, you know, that is that is doing their thing in the second division. What's that like supporting them here you've been again you've been out of the country for 15 years you've been living in america being an entrepreneur establishing yourself here what's it like supporting that because it's only within the last like 10 years or so where people where america as as you have said we talked about this many times you've seen the soccer culture in this country change you've seen the soccer culture in this metropolitan area we're right outside new york city where that has changed so seeing that but again cheering on a team that is in the second flight, not even in the top flight. How, what's that like doing that, the struggle supporting that and seeing well, things change here? It's difficult to get uh, TV coverage over if anything in the champions, uh, championship or second division, as you call it. So that makes it challenging. But of course, you got the internet, so you can log on and, and, and find streams generally. But I'll be honest, we're so fucking shit these days that it's actually painful to watch. Um, <laughs> no, do, I, do I want to spend my Saturday morning when I've been grafting all week here in America turn on and watch that shit don't get me wrong if I was home I would go because it's it's more than just watching it then it's the whole experience and going to St Andrews still is one of my favourite things to do you know really? when I, I go home twice a year like one in the summer so there's no football on but always in the Christmas time so I always get a few games in then and you know my boys still still season ticket holders and um and they like away games. And they've all got kids now as well, so they take the kids there, so it's fun with that too. 
Um, the kids are like 16, so they've started boozing as well. It's starting to get dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not allowed to say that in American uh, podcasts, right? 16 and in the pub. We are global. There we go. Audience of the world, you know, Curva Mundial, baby. We're all over the world. Indeed, uh, yeah. But no, I mean, look, the other thing is, of course, is that when, you, when you're talking to people about football and you tell them over here, Americans, that you're a Birmingham City fan, you get the glass-eyed stare at you. <laughs> <laughs> It's like the Accrington Stanley thing. Accrington Stanley, you and I. But of course, Peaky Blinders have changed everything now. Right? For, for, uh, for, for me over here, because of course everyone knows Peaky Blinders, right. and everyone as a result of that knows Birmingham when perhaps they didn't before. Um, I can't tell you how, how much Peaky Blinders has put Birmingham on the map. I had somebody in one of my shops the other day. They're like, "So are the accents any good?" I mean, they're fucking shit. <laughs> Yeah, look, one day I do want to get Cillian Murphy on the show. So let's, uh, you know. Um, I'll tell him if he comes on. <laughs> you'll have to, you know, I'll, I'll be I love you, Murphy. Mr. Murphy. I, I do enjoy your any movies or, or TV you're in, and your music selections are quality, but the Birmingham accent, I'm not happy. <laughs> uh, hilarious. Um, you know, seeing, though, the soccer culture in this country change, I've seen it as I've grown up in it. See, yeah. going from I remember being a kid, or not even a kid. I remember being a teenager, and when David Beckham was the biggest star of stars for Manchester United, and trying to tell your friends that there's there's this amazing guy, you know, doing these free kicks, and they're like, "Ooh," yeah. you know, because it's we're, we're as much of a sports culture we are in America. We only love the sports that we have. Now it's different. Now it's social media. There's all sorts of different things, and. Uh, very far greater promotion than I've ever seen mm. for to promote soccer in this country. You, on the other hand, coming here, seeing it evolve, what's that been like for you? And do you see, and how has it changed for you? Well, when I used to get the pubs in New York to watch football on a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning, whether it was Nevada Smiths or, or Legends, um, right. the Legends was later on, really. It was only really Nevadas to begin with. The, the, the majority of the people that were inside of the pub were, were expats, you know what I mean? Um, there weren't too many uh, Americans. And of course, whenever I go now, it's, it's a big 50-50 mix, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So obviously the participation in, in, in watching football, at least I've seen in, in the pubs and Saturday and Sunday mornings here, has, has, has doubled, mate. Literally doubled. It's a huge interest for it now, you know? Uh, but also this, I took my kid, my daughter, um, to go and see the Red Bulls yeah. uh, four months ago uh, against New York City. So I was like, take her that. Never been to a football match before because she won't come when she comes on. She ain't into football. I've tried my best. She's not. Uh, <laughs> fucking, the kids haven't got attention span of about five seconds these days. So ask them to sit down for 45 minutes to watch a football match. You have no fucking chance. Uh, anyway, so I take her to the football thinking this is going to be, you know, a moment I could change. But deep down thinking she, I haven't got a chance. And we get there. And anyway, the clouds open, cell, and it pisses down with rain. And they fucking abandoned the match. But not only they abandoned the match, they had to stand in the concourse of, of the Red Bull Stadium. Couldn't right. go and sit in the seats because they were like, it's dangerous. Why is it dangerous? It's raining. Well, there's going to be some lightning. Uh, okay, well, uh, you know, the chance of being about one in a million. Um, I'm under the fucking roof here. Can't sit in my seat. No, you got to stand in the concourse. So they made a stand in the concourse for like, 50 minutes after kickoff time, 
uh, uh, not announcing that it was going to be abandoned. And so after 50 minutes, I'm like, you know what, Lola, let's call this a day and, and trap. So we left and sure enough, it was abandoned. And I said to the fucking, I said to the, uh, the stewards, I left, I goes, mate, that rain that you've abandoned this match in, that was standard practice for me on a Sunday morning when I played football, that rain out there. We played in that every week. <laughs> well, that kind of blows my mind because that stadium is designed to just have the players get wet. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, it's a gorgeous arena, but it's designed to only have the players get wet. You can't get wet in the stand, no? Wow. But they abandoned it because potentially, and I guess this is the day and age we live in, that was health and safety. Jesus Christ. Imagine I'm on a pitch with like uh, Roy Keane in his prime or uh, Nobby Styles and talk about health and safety. Do you now see, like, even if you watch MLS, you know, with your knowledge and your experience, have you also seen the quality shift and change and gotten better? I'll be honest, I don't watch MLS, so I can't really comment on oh, that. Okay, all right. Um, I, 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 don't, I don't have the time for uh, uh, four leagues. I have time for one or two at most. And my other, I have another passion of sport. I'm a mad cricket fan. Mate, so all right, I'm, you are. A hu- you like to make things hard on yourself and just be like, I'm going to go to a place in the world where Birmingham City can't be played on television. Yeah, they no one knows anything about cricket. Well, actually, it's funny you mention that, though. The town that I live in, Jersey City, uh, has a massive Indian population. Do, yeah. Huge. So they're, they're crazy into cricket. So yeah. I get an opportunity to talk loads about cricket. It happens, mate. Yeah. So it um, works out. But it's interesting about cricket and football. Uh, and I've said this to the lads Birmingham as a city is. Perhaps the only city, major city in in, um, in in England that it's okay to be a cricket fan and a football fan because in England, typically cricket looks as being like a tough sport. Do you know what I mean? Right, 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 right. Posh person sports. Um, but as I said, in Birmingham, it's fine. And our cricket ground, which is called uh, Warwickshire CC, Edgebaston, is is an absolute haven of blue noses. So whenever England play or Warwickshire play, it's flooded with blue nosed football supporters who are fucking loud, mate. And as a result of that, Edge Baston as a ground has a reputation of being the loudest in world cricket, or one of them, because you know you got to factor in that the Indians get mental in their crowds. So, um, yeah. But yeah, it's wild. We're, it's it's almost okay to be a working class kid and like cricket and football in Birmingham. Wow, yeah, because you you're right. Those audiences never mix. You know, they never. Um, and very interesting. Um, but a lot of that's to do with Birmingham City. Birmingham City have, have got a big cricket fan component. And is and is that a testament to the diversity of that city, though? Yes, I would imagine so. Yeah, mm-hmm. a lot of West Indians, a lot of Indians grew up and in with alongside us in the seventies and eighties, made us mad for cricket. Yeah, cool, very yeah. cool. Um, now I want to just like pivot for a second to talk about the other beautiful thing that we both enjoy, you know, being Italian, we're known for enjoying a good espresso, a good coffee, yeah, being English. Also, you know, English coffee culture, like doesn't get enough, doesn't get talked about enough. Every time I've gone to the UK, always find a great cafe, just fantastic. Coffee is very good, but you are taking it to a different level where you're giving every Italian roaster I know a run for their money. Well, now, I'm not just saying that. I'm not just saying that because you're sponsoring this podcast. Well, you know that 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 particular blend that I sent to you, which is an Italian style roast. Mm. Um, we just sent that into Coffee Review or an online uh, coffee review website. Um, and it's called 94, mate. So that's a, that's a big screen for, for, a, for, a, for a deeply, darkly roasted coffee like that. Yeah. So 
it, it went down well, even at their review site, mate. But getting back to the thing about coffee in England, right? So obviously Italy has a great tradition of, of coffee because, you know, they pretty much invented espresso culture. They invented the espresso machine. And uh, and as far as coffee culture, Italy is, you know, is up there with, with some of the best in the world. Um, and England, uh, uh, up until the last sort of 15 years, right, had a terrible coffee culture. We, I mean, I was raised on drinking instant coffee. It was solely for the delivery of caffeine. Um, and that was most of what, what, I, what I knew and most people around me knew. Um, but, of course, then the Australians started settling down in London and the Aussies brought their own espresso culture, which is very good too. Oh, wow. Maybe again, because of Italian and, and Greek immigrants that settled in, in Australia in the 40s and as a result of that, they have a mega espresso culture that then they transferred over to, to London and then it spread around the country. But if you look at England historically, we've always been uh, a, a, a big player really in the development of coffee as, as a worldwide beverage. If you go back to like the 1600s, mid, mid to late 1600s, there were more coffee shops in London alone than the rest of the world combined. Right. And interestingly, the, my company's called Mod Cup, right? So mm -hmm. it stands for modern coffee, but it's also a reference to the mods. And the mods um, were really one of the, 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 the group of people that brought the consumption of espresso and good coffee back to UK culture in the 50s um, after the Second World War. You know, the mods were known as this young group of people. They were influenced by Italian uh, culture and American style Italian culture, uh, scooters, suits and coffee too. Um, but we'd really been a tea nation after the, the we'd, in, we'd pretty much made India an empire. And the sole reason for that is India... Uh, you know, India grew coffee and we, we realised that coffee is a bastard to grow and growing tea is a lot easier. Uh, it isn't susceptible to diseases as much as uh, tea is and it ships uh, a lot cheaper because it's lighter. Oh, interesting. So we became a tea nation really right. because of our association with the, with the Indian Empire. But then the mods brought back coffee culture in the 50s and that's one of the reasons that we kind of are mod cup. Sergio Tacchini's, Lembretta's, Vespers, mm -hmm. and of course, a nice espresso. But how did you get into roasting? Because I love you. Because when you told me that, because again, being a music nerd, seeing your logo, because uh, I ran a music website in the early 2000s and my logo was also the mod logo, which is yeah. what yours is. Yeah. So there was that kindred connection there. But you never just wanted to be a, a cafe. You wanted to be a roastery from the get-go. What? How did that come about? Well, what it was, was that I, I, I was living in Toronto um, and we happened to live next door to a coffee roaster. And up until that period of time in my life, I didn't really, again, see anything in coffee other than a caffeine delivery vessel. And most coffee I drank, I put cream, milk, sugar in it, because it was generally bitter, overly roasted and pretty nasty. And that was the way I made it palatable to get my kick to make me start my day. So we lived next door to this roaster and he, people forget, he said to me, once he told me he's a coffee roaster, oh, that's interesting. Um, and he started talking. He was like, you know, the coffees I sell are, are very fruity. And what do you mean? He goes, well, coffee's a fruit, isn't it? I goes, I didn't know that. He goes, well, what do you think the bean is? I goes, a bean? He's like, no, it's seed. It's the seed of the coffee fruit. And that right there was like, fucking hell, man. I, I thought I was pretty well educated. I didn't even know that. Um, so he said to me, come down to my roastery one day next week, and I'll give you a cup of coffee that'll untwist your head. I goes, what do you mean? He goes, well, it'll be like nothing you've ever had. So I went over there because I was intrigued, and he gave me his coffee, and it was black, and I said, can I have some milk and sugar? He says, you won't need it with that. I was all right. So I tried it and it tasted like strawberries, mate. And I was like, mate, this is mad. What did you flavor it with? And he's like, nothing. That's just the natural flavor of the coffee. Wow. I was like, fucking hell. And, and as a result of that, uh, my interest was peaked and I jumped down the rabbit hole and decided when I came back to Jersey City that that was going to be my new direction, um, was to move out of art. Because I was selling art for 10 years previous mm -hmm. to that. Um, 
and so yeah, it wasn't being done here in Jersey City. There was roasters in Brooklyn, but there wasn't any really here that were, were treating it as a craft and an art and, and going to stores and buying coffee direct. So we uh, we said, well, I'll have a bit of that. And so we blasted a hole in a ceiling of a garage that we rented. We put a pipe through it. And we started roasting in that garage. Um, and we had a little tiny espresso cart that we dragged down to the waterfront in Hoboken and, and preached the, the gospel of coffee is a fruit. Um, which is the which is the tagline for my coffee. Tagline, yeah. And yeah. drink modern coffee. I mean, there's two taglines, but you know, there is the thing about it too is that you also brought in you put your own spin on it and you brought your own culture here to it because it is obviously very, very, very inspired by a Britpop, very inspired by the mod scene, very inspired by all the things that we're talking about here. And the shops are just this element of cool. Like they're just a place that you want to go and hang out and listen to good music. Drink well, coffee. yeah, totally sell. I mean, most coffee shops that I've been going into when I was formulating the idea after come back from Canada, I couldn't understand why you walked in there and there were like libraries. People yeah. were sitting there on laptops. The baristas were very hoity-toity. They didn't really want to give you any information on why the coffee tasted the way that the way that it did. And any questions that you asked, you were sort of fobbed off as being somewhat of a nutter. Um, and I thought, well, when we start ours, we're going to do the exact opposite of that. It's going to have tunes. They're going to be loud. You're not going to be able to sit in there and work on laptops. And there's going to be a vibe. And all of our baristas that work there are going to know their shit. And they're going to tell you about it with passion. And, and so that was really the formulating of the whole spirit behind it. And as far as I'm concerned, mod isn't just, you know, Britpop or, 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 you know, soul. Mod to me is every formulation of, of, of counterculture subcultures that has existed in the UK since the you know early 60s, really. And you can include punk in mod for me. You can include rave in mod for me. Um, it's a, it's a dynamic thing that's always fluid and always looking forward to be somewhat modern and new, even though it takes elements of history and, and mashes it together, you know? So we kind of brought that into, into the company. Um, but thank you for saying you enjoyed it. It was cool. <laughs> no, I mean, it really, it truly, truly is. Like I, it felt to me like the place that I've always wanted to be. In. You know, the funny is, is that for so long, especially in my twenties, you know, dressing and I still, you know, Ben Sherman, you know, is like a big staple of my wardrobe and ten and maybe one day they'll sponsor this podcast. You know, maybe I keep talking about it enough. <laughs> Again, I, it felt like when I was a teenager trying to explain British soccer or just yeah. soccer in general, not even British. It was just soccer in general to my friends. Yeah. In my 20s, it was the same thing because you had all these amazing bands coming from the UK. It was Arctic Monkeys. It was Block Party. It was Franz Ferdinand. It was... It was that whole scene of just this revitalization of just like, oh, well, I was I was a little young, early teen when Britpop was happening. And as you said, it's it's more than just that. But there was that movement of Oasis, Blur, Suede, Elastica, all those bands. Yeah. I was a little too young to go and see all that. But like all those other bands that were coming out, that that iPod generation, if you will. That was like, yes, I want to I want to I want to live in this forever and ever and ever because it was just the epitome of cool. I couldn't find places like that in the New York area. And then your place had opened up and it was yeah. like, wow. And well, then I finally years yeah. later, then I make the connection. Wait a minute. I've been to your coffee shop. You're the owner. Holy cow. Like this is, you know, it's, it's funny how life plays that way. Because yeah, I've been exactly. to your shops long before you and I have met. That's crazy. <laughs> crazy. Brilliant. Nice. Brilliant. But, you know, so like getting back to the thing is that you really, as you said, coffee is a fruit. It's it's much more than what people think it is. 
you get your hands dirty. You go right into the soil. You've been across South America. You've been across Africa. You've been across this country and this continent trying to find the perfect bean. It isn't just about making good coffee, but finding the best in the world. So what's your relationship like among these farmers? And is that what sets you apart from everybody else? Well, look, no, I mean, there are lots of other people that do what we do too, that travel to source and, and uh, try and buy direct. The, the term fair trade coffee is a bit of a dinosaur now. It's set up with the right intentions, of course, when it was set up in, I think, the mid-90s. And that was to ensure that, you know, that the farmers got their fair crack of the whip. Um, you know, coffee... <laughs> historically has existed as a as a beacon of uh, of imperialism and it's cheap because of the fact that it's farmed in third world countries that we don't pay much for it so fair trade was set up and designed to try and you know sort of crack into that a little bit but of course with the advent to the internet and being able to reach directly out to farms um that's kind of made fair trade unnecessary you know a lot of the farms that we can deal with we i'll contact them um and ask them to send me some samples. They'll send me green samples. We sample roast them, we cup them if we like them. We'll arrange to buy and then we arrange importation and shipping and get it over and then try and formulate a relationship from that by visiting them, seeing them on their farms, seeing how they operate and, and trying to make that relationship longer term, if you like, you know? For sure. I mean, it really is. And it you taste the difference, but there's also, you know, it's, it's knowing that people talk about everything being properly sourced today and you know everyone's trying to be as conscious about or trying to be as conscious as they can yeah. about yeah. What, what they're ingesting what they're buying and you know this is a really really wonderful beautiful way of doing it plus again the money's going right there's not there's no middleman here no and that's the other thing of course is that when the farmer says i want x amount of money the, the, the money's wired directly into their hole in a can and there is no middleman in between that's not to say every single coffee we buy is in that manner we still use certain importers and traders as well um who are if you like certainly a middleman um but the prices from them are higher than if i went direct to the farm you know what i mean yeah yeah for sure so as a business opportunity and someone that's looking to you know, save, save money, you reach directly out and, and that's the way to do it, mate, you know? Cool, man. Now you got a great thing going. You're, you're creating a beautiful culture in your shops. If you're in Jersey City, please go visit Mod Cup. And if you're not in Jersey City, you can order from Mod Cup as the commercial right now will tell you. <laughs> now time for a coffee break. Curva Mundial is sponsored by Mod Cup Coffee in Jersey City. But you can get it anywhere in the world from ModCup.com. ModCup. Drink modern coffee. Use code MUNDIAL for 10% off your first order. All right, Trav. So now we're going to come, and this is my favorite part of the show. As a listener, you know what I'm about to ask. These are the three questions I'm asking everybody. I know you've studied very hard for these. Ha! So... Question number one, you could bring back one retired player to Birmingham City, alive or dead. Who would it be and why? Trevor Francis. It has to be, doesn't it? You know, all day long. has to be Francis. By the way, the first ever £1 million player in football history, Trevor Francis. Get out, really? Yeah. yeah. I did not know that. All yeah. right. So, so, yeah. and, uh, and Brian Clough will tell you he didn't pay a million for him. He paid 999999 <laughs> Honestly, he says that because I wouldn't pay a fucking million. I paid less than that. One pound less. <laughs> Which is the most Brian Clough, like, ism. That's, uh, you can hear him saying that. If you know anything about him, like, you can hear him saying this. Totally. Um, 
Look, the man scored a hat trick against Villa at the age of 40. He's a fucking legend. <laughs> for QPR. I think he was 40. He might have been 39. I'm waiting for all the pitchforks to come out for any of the Villa fans that aren't listening. Um, <laughs> I, they're going to be lodged in my direction. So, uh, you know, this is, this is going to be fun. But no disrespect to Villa here. Uh, you know, money's not an option in the second question. Your club could sign one player today. Who would it be and why? Hmm. Interesting. I think what I, the player that's impressed me most this season has been Declan Rice, mate. For real? Okay, so here's the interesting thing. He's going for, like, an astronomical amount of money this summer. Like, he's yeah. definitely leaving his club. They want a ton of cash for him. I, I'm i not arguing with you. I'm just You're not impressed. It's an interesting net. I'm not impressed. I, am, I don't think, again, like another Grealish, I don't think he's worth the price tag. Uh, well, all English players go for more money, perhaps, than they're worth, don't they? Let's be honest here. Um, but I just, I, he, he's the kind of player that every team, for me, fucking needs in their team. Okay. Grabs the ball, he takes the pace, he, he goes forward now, he's not a sideways player. Mm-hmm. Aggressive, box to box. I think he's a mad talent, I do, mate. I really Okay. Do. All right. No, I like seeing... I want you to show me something player, that I have. He's not a player like, you know, like... Uh, uh, a centre forward that would, you know, that most people are going to mention because I don't think that's the kind of player that we need. We need a player that's going to bring everyone together that's kind of average and run of the mill and say, listen, you can do this too. You know, I did this, you know, and that's kind of why Rice to me would be, would be, you know, we got no fucking chance of getting anyone like Declan Rice for Birmingham City, mate, languishing about 18th in the championship. But if we could and money wasn't an option, I think he'd be my man. Okay. All right. Very cool. Very cool. And finally, I think we touched on it earlier, but what is your favourite moment as a fan? I mean, my favourite moment as a fan, Birmingham, is of course has to be when we won the Cup, that 88-minute Oberfemi Martins winner. Uh, Keeper dropped the ball at his feet, he banged it in. That, I mean, there's probably never be a moment like that as far as club football goes for me ever. Um, My favourite goal I ever saw scored was Deli Adebola away at Man City in the 91st minute when he ran from the halfway line, beat like three people and slotted it into the uh, corner. And we uh, we won 1-0. And I just remember having to walk out of the old Man City ground and through like in all the moss-side terraced houses you used to do back there on Main Road. And all with our parkers up. Because uh, we were laughing, mate. Because that was the year, I believe... I'm, I think Man City went down that year to Division 3, didn't they? Oh, wow. I think that was the year they went down. Didn't they go down that year? I might be wrong. I think they did. Anyway, that was the greatest just moment. To I see mean, it sounds like an incredible first minute winner ran from the halfway, and it was towards us. We were behind the goal. So he was oh. running towards us, you know what I mean? And we're like, oh, you need to beat him. Go on, go on, go on. Fucking yes! <laughs> <laughs> And then as far as England goes, I mean, God, I'm so conditioned. What, it wasn't, it wasn't the Euro final this summer? Because, I mean, that was definitely something to, uh, to be excited about, right? Right? I mean, at least for me it was. It was amazing. <laughs> but ultimately, classic England again. Score early, try and sit back and defend it, and lose on penalties, mate. I've seen it a million times. It was, I, I've said it before on this podcast. I'll say it again. I've never, it's good to have confidence, but I've never seen a team so overly confident as, as the three lions were heading into that final and Italy. T- and what's crazy is they were the underdogs. 
Um, I, I love that final. It was a great game. It was a great outcome, at least for me. I'm sorry, but it, but it was, but the script was like, just so written, as you just said, it was like, how many times has the world seen this score early defend lose on PKs and it's over. All the time I've seen us do it so many times in, in history. <laughs> we go one up and go, oh, that's it. Early sit back, man. It never works. What is it about that team that you think that they can't overcome that? Mm, it's a psychology thing, surely. I'm not sure. Look, I, I've said this about Southgate before, and I've talked about it with a few people. Some of my blues mates won't have him at all, simply because he's got Villa connections in it. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, sometimes I feel he's a bit too pragmatic. Look, he's, he's, he's built up the level of confidence in the team and has a real squad structure around him, which I can't remember many England managers having in my lifetime. Um, that he, he certainly haven't bought into that, but there's still that final hurdle to overcome. And I guess that hurdle can't be overcome until you have a trophy in your hand, can it? Right, right. That's a good point. We've made the semi-final in 2018, mm-hmm. final 2020. I'm just hoping that the 2024 down the road in New Jersey sees our boy Jude Bellingham lifting the World Cup, mate. That might be something special. I mean, that's the other thing, too. We're going to have to really scrimp and save and fight to go get tickets for that because that final's in our backyard. I mean, we we better be there. Yeah. And I'm, Jude Bellingham better be our captain by then as well. I mean, he will. Yeah, he'll be falling up. Like, you should be growing up at that point to really that's start making some waves. Yeah. I mean, you might remember, mate. Blue nose. Oh, okay. All right. All right. So wait, before I let you go, what was the England, what's the England moment though? I, 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 I like a dick. I sidetracked and had to just, you know, throw in the little jab here, but. You know, for me, the, the most memorable competition of, of, of my entire life was that 1990 world cup when I was 14, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. cried like a baby. Mm-hmm. I think I've cried like a baby three times since then too. And England have been knocked out, mate. It's pretty standard with me, but that one then mate was, Oh, the whole tournament, you know, was incredible. Gascoigne at his prime. Yeah, yeah it I, that really was long crimped hair. So good. It's so you know you have that tournament. What's funny is that of a generation for the people that witnessed it. I, I feel bad for people that never watched that tournament or weren't born yet or weren't into the sport yet. Even as a six-year-old kid, I've talked about it a million times. I will continue to talk about it until I have no more breath in my body. I've never had something impact my life more than that summer than that yeah. than that torn that specific tournament because that was my love letter to get me that was the gateway drug that got me into all of this was that right. I'm sure that. it was yeah see i remember the i mean i was only six the 82 world cup and i remember it really because brian robson came mm-hmm. uh, was kept scoring like after 30 seconds against France. And that was my dad screaming and then it was like six, whoa, what's happening there? And then of course I really got into the 86 one when I was 10, when, when um, I was in Mexico, but it was a really weird time for us in the UK. I think I had to get up at like two, three o'clock in the morning, which is a 10 year old. It was exciting, wow. but kind of difficult to do too. Did you watch the hand of God goal then? Did you see that? I was watching that live. Yeah. Wow. What was that moment like for you then? Was that just like, Hey, this, this is a penalty or, did I just witness the most beautiful thing ever, even though it was against my team? There was nothing beautiful about it, mate. There still is nothing beautiful about it. <laughs> Steady the fuck on sell. <laughs> Tell you what, there was something beautiful about it. it was bringing Barnsley on with 15 minutes to go and he tore him apart. Like, why wasn't he on the whole game? <laughs> you know, set up Lineker's header, set up another one for Lineker. Like, he's going to bang that in too. 
Same thing, you know, running to the byline, crossing him with his left peg. Barnes, he was a class player. Travis, this has been awesome. This has been super fun. Thank you so much for... Uh, oh, thanks for having me on, buddy. And congratulations on getting up and running and doing a great thing, man. You're doing wicked. I'm loving it. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Good. And uh, of course, thank you for the coffee. Follow us on Twitter at Curva Mundial Pod and subscribe to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.